Hey, so we've been in a message series called Rhythms That Lead to Life. It's a series about the practices that put us in a position to know and to love and to follow Jesus, not just on Sunday, but every day and every hour of our week. And today we're continuing our set of teachings on the words we speak by looking at what's called lament. Which means today we're not going to be looking at those mountaintop moments of life, those moments when breakthrough happens, when the gap between heaven and earth get really thin and we experience something extraordinary. We're not going to be looking at those moments today, as good as those are and beautiful as they are. We're not going to be talking about those today, but instead we're going to be talking about the moments of the valley. Those times when pain and grief and sadness and difficulty visit us, reminding us that this world isn't as it should be. And so that's where we're going today and we're going down into the valley and we're going to talk about the words that we speak when we are there. And so to help us think through this and teach us about what it looks like to lament, we're going to be in the song and prayer book of ancient Israel called Psalms. You find it in the Old Testament part of the Bible, the part of the Bible before Jesus. And so if you have a Bible, Grab it and turn to Psalm 77. That's where we're going to be camping out today. And we're going to start by reading the first nine verses to orient ourselves to the world of the psalmist and what he is going through. We pick it up in verse 1 where it says this. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out on tiring hands and I would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned, I meditated, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart meditated, and my spirit asked, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Okay, so this is not a tame prayer at all. It's honest. It's raw. It's unfiltered. It's a person in pain pouring out their heart to God and holding nothing back. You can hear it in line after line after line as the psalmist cries out, God, I am in distress. I can't find any comfort or peace. I feel weak and I'm confused. I can't sleep. I can't speak. My spirit is faint. It's deeply troubled. Help me, God. This is the cry of a, a hurting heart. This is someone putting words to their grief and their frustration and their tiredness. This is someone longing for the days when things were better. This is someone reaching out to God, not just with their words, but with their hands. They're engaging their entire body to find God in the middle of this storm that is their life. And this is someone putting words to their pain in a world where things are not as they should be. And this brings us to the first reality of lament, is that lament emerges out of a world where things are not as they should be. And look, I don't have to convince you of this, but we live in a world where something has gone wrong and that something wrong is causing us all kinds of pain and hardship and sadness and loss. If you look back ever since the garden, the story that we see told in the first book of the Bible in Genesis 3, ever since the garden and the human choice to disobey God, the world has experienced a fracturing. Something has fractured in the human heart and things are not the way that God intended them to be. 
There are things present in this world that were never meant to be here. This world and the human experience is fractured. And this fractured world we live in, it's the stage that creates the need for lament. It creates the stage for lament to happen. And look, we are more aware of this, maybe than ever before, that there's something wrong in this world. I mean, if the past two years have taught us anything, it's that, isn't it? See, we experienced something over these past few years that nobody expected and nobody wanted. I mean, we didn't choose this, it chose us. And we have lived through a time of global uncertainty. It's been stressful. It's heightened our anxiety and fear. It made us feel more fragile than ever before. It's been deadly. Worldwide, there have been millions of people who have died during this global pandemic. It's made us question things we've never questioned before, and it's made us feel angry and lonely and depressed and divided and disillusioned and even hopeless at times. And sure, there were good moments over the past few years. It wasn't all bad, but hasn't the last few years made you realize that there is something wrong in this world and it's not the way it should be? I mean, we watched as someone kneeled on another person's neck and didn't relent when that person yelled out, I can't breathe. We saw nations invade other nations and people storming government buildings. We, we've learned about innocent people who have gotten caught in the crossfire and have died. We've seen natural disasters strike, just like the earthquake in Japan this week that has caused devastation and a long uphill climb for communities and families and people. We've read about leaders in the church abusing their power again. And we live in a day and an age on the news cycle and online where we see that we are living in a time of ever-increasing polarization, anger, and division. And you can't go through the moment that we've been in and not been marked in some way. Just like for the psalmist, he was marked by the world that he inhabited. His world is uncertain and it's confusing. His world was turned upside down and he's searching for God and wondering where God is and he can't understand why God isn't doing something to fix it. He's prayed and he's prayed and he's prayed, but nothing has changed. There's no relief coming. There's no sign that God has heard. There's no hope or help on the horizon. He's crying out to God and nothing. Silence. And that silence has made him question God because not just the inner anguish and distress that he's feeling, he also has doubts. He's questioning God. He's questioning where God is and he doesn't hold back, not one bit. See, so notice as he prays, he starts asking these questions. Will God reject me forever? Will he never again be kind to me? Has his unfailing love finally been used up? Have the promises he's made failed forever? Has he forgotten to show mercy and be gracious to me? Has he shut the door of his compassion? His questions just pour out. God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? Fix this. Why aren't you doing this, God, in response to my prayer? You ever prayed something like that before? Because I have. See, when, when Catherine was pregnant with our first son, Levi, uh, we had an ultrasound and the doctors noticed that there was this tear at the, in this part of Catherine's womb and it was causing internal bleeding and it was putting Levi's life at risk. And that just hit us so hard because we already loved Levi so much. And when we asked the doctors, what can we do? The answer was nothing. There's nothing we can do. All we can do is wait and hope that it heals on its own. 
And when you hear that as a parent, it's really scary because there's something hardwired in you to care for your kid, even though they're already in, a, in, they're just in the womb, they're not even outside the womb and you can't even see them or hold them. You already love this little thing so much. You are hardwired to care for them and protect them and want to make sure that they're okay. But when you can't do that, when you can't do anything and you're out of control and you have no control, yeah, it's really hard. And for four weeks, Catherine and I, we lived with the fear that we might lose our baby boy that we already love so much. And I remember praying during that time, God, why are you doing this to us? Why aren't you doing your job better, God? Look, I know you can fix this, so why aren't you? This isn't the way it was supposed to be. This is supposed to be a happy time. This is supposed to be a joyous time, but I'm afraid. I'm worried, I'm concerned, I'm anxious, God. This wasn't the way it was supposed to be. And I can't tell you how many times I prayed that prayer over those four weeks as we waited to see if Levi was gonna be okay. And, and thankfully, he was. The tear healed, um, but it marked us. It marked us and it made us face the reality that the, the world we live in is not as it should be. And that makes me really resonate with what the psalmist is saying here because he's struggling, he's hurting, he's in pain. The world that he inhabits does not make sense. And notice how he's responding to it. He's letting it all out. He's praying what he's feeling. He's praying his questions. He's holding nothing back. And, and the question that I have is, when have you prayed like this? Have you ever prayed like this? When was the last time you prayed like the psalmist prays? See, the truth is, is that some of us have never prayed like this. Or some of us feel uneasy about praying like this. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think if you boil it down, one of the main reasons is that we just don't have a framework for how to process our pain in our culture, but also, sadly, in the church sometimes. So we feel uneasy about this. We, we don't feel comfortable bringing this level of honesty to God or to others. And this is not just outside the church, but it's also inside, like I said. Just think about it. Both the church and the, and the culture have this uneasy relationship with pain. See, if we were truly honest, we would see pain, predominantly sometimes, as something to resist and to avoid. We put such a high value in the West on our comfort and our pleasure and the good life that pain is seen as an unwelcome intruder to that and something to be avoided at all costs. But the thing is, is we can't escape pain. We can't run from it. We can't ignore it. We can't pretend like it doesn't exist. And so what do we do when pain visits us, when, when grief rises up? Well, so often the culture processes pain by medicating it. We seek to numb the pain we feel through our drug of choice. It might be alcohol. We have too many drinks or we seek to numb the pain by getting, getting drunk or maybe it's looking at pornography uh, or excessive exercise, or escaping into Netflix, or Disney Plus, or YouTube, or your streaming service of choice. Anything that we do in excess, in a response to the pain we feel, to numb that, what we're doing is we're medicating. And excess in any area, what it ends up leading to is slavery. Because we're always gonna need more of that thing to, to get the same effect on the pain we feel. And so it's this vicious cycle. We always will need a little bit more and we'll need a little bit more and it just becomes more and more enslaving. And that's not just out 
outside the church, but it's actually in the church too, because if we're actually honest, we're not that much different than the culture in this area. See, we either engage in the same things we just talked about and we just keep it hidden from people, or we deal with our pain in a more socially acceptable way, like we serve. We become the super volunteer. We all know those people. The person that serves in like 10 ministries is always signing up to volunteer. And that might just be because they have a servant heart, but sometimes it's because they're using their religious performance as a way to avoid dealing with the pain that they're in. They're hustling, they're, they're, they're busy, they're, they're doing everything they can to have to avoid slowing down and actually feeling what they are feeling. And please hear me. <laughs> I'm not saving, saying serving is bad. Serving is good. Get involved in a local church. Get serving. Just don't use it as a way to not deal with your pain because it's not healthy. Your pain will come out in some way and it will affect your health. And so don't use service as a way to avoid your pain. So that's one way. But what about pretending like we're better than we are? See, in the church, it's a really good place to put up a front. See, sometimes we don't want people to see how we're really doing, so we pretend like we're doing better than we are. We pretend like we're okay when we're actually not. It comes out when someone asks you, how are you doing? And you say, I'm good, or I'm fine, I'm doing all right, when you're really not good at all. And we do this because we often feel this tension in the church. I don't know if you feel it, but I know I feel it. it this tension that, be, you know, we follow Jesus, and we know that Jesus has risen from the dead, and because of that, we know that through our faith in Jesus, we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm, that God has been so good to us. He has given us so much. He has been so gracious to us, and so it feels wrong to admit that things are hard. It feels wrong or like we're being ungrateful when we're down or we admit things are hard because, hey, look at all the good things God has given me, right? And maybe, just maybe, we also think somewhere deep down that being a good Christian means you have to have it all together all the time. That it's a sign of immaturity when we admit that we're not doing that well. But let's just think about this for a moment. Jesus lamented. You ever thought about that? Jesus lamented. He lamented in his life in the Garden of Gethsemane, this garden just outside Jerusalem, the, the night he was betrayed by one of his friends, the, the night before he went to the cross. He is in the garden and he is crying out to God in prayer, Mike, God, take this from me. Is there a better way? Is there another way for me to save our people that doesn't require me suffering and going through pain? He's praying that and he chooses in the end to trust God. He says, not my will, but your will be done. He's in the garden and he's lamenting. Or what about the cry of the cross? Probably the most famous lament that we have is Jesus is on the cross and he's dying and he's suffocating to death and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus lamented. And if Jesus needed to lament, then you and I need to lament as well that there's actually maturity and spiritual well-being and health in the journey and the process of lament, that lament is one stop on the way to joy, just like the cross was one step on the way to the resurrection. But sadly, sometimes we don't feel we have the room to lament or grieve or to not be okay in the church, do we? See, the reality is sometimes the church isn't the easiest place to lament. 
And I like what A.J. Soboda, an author and a professor, says about this. He says, contemporary conservative Christianity has a theological framework for understanding elevation experiences. That's his word for the mountaintop moments. He says, we are great at serving people in their success, spiritual growth, and victory. But contemporary evangelicalism has less of a framework for valley experiences. We are elevation churches. We have communities where blessing and happiness and joy are part and parcel of following Jesus, which can be great. But we can only remain part of those communities as long as that remains the trajectory of our lives. The minute we enter a valley, being around all the happy, clappy, rejoicing can get really difficult. Sometimes the valley and the church have this uneasy relationship. And you might have experienced that. I know I have. See, in the church, we're so often more comfortable with the highs of the mountaintops than we are with the lows of the valley. And because of that, we have churches and, and ministries full of people who are hurting and in pain but don't feel like they have the permission to let it out or to share it. And so what ends up happening is we just bury it, we ignore it, we, we pretend like things are okay, we, we move on from it too quickly when what we really need is to slow down and address it and make room for people to do that. See, our space in the church sometimes, the environment we create isn't conducive to lament and that creates a pace that is wrong. We don't know how to sit in our pain and just be there feeling it and so often we offer up in the church that, the phrase, God is good, or I'm just trusting God, or I need to trust him more, and then we just move on, and we never really slow down and deal with our inner worlds that are in chaos. See, sometimes the best thing we can do in the church and in our lives is make room for lament. To slow down, to feel, and to put words to what we're feeling and hold nothing back. And I know that that's not easy. It's vulnerable, it's emotional, it's, it's risky even. It, it feels uncomfortable to, to talk to God or to someone else in an unfiltered way. I get it. I really do. But what it does do, what lament does do, is help us process our pain with God in a healthy way. In a healthy way. And that's what we need right now. See, we need to give ourselves permission to grieve and to lament, to let our pain push us to God and not away from him. To let our pain drive us to God and not stuff it down and bury it and ignore it and try to move past it or medicate it. And notice again, that's what the psalmist is doing. He is in pain, but he's not silent about it. He brings his pain to God. He offers it up to God. And what I'm seeing as I walk with people pastorally is, is often the opposite. is that there's this unexpressed grief that people are carrying around. People are hurting, they have questions, they're going through stuff. And for some reason, there's this, this hitch in them that doesn't want, doesn't let them move ahead to actually expressing the grief that is so often left unexpressed. And what I know is that they are lamenting, just not in a way that leads to life. See, no matter who you are, whether you believe in Jesus or you don't, we all feel the weight of pain and grief. And we all tend to process it but we just don't do it in a way that's healthy. It might be gossip, it might be having one too many drinks, it might be buying that thing you don't need, it might be all the other things we've talked about. What these are are false laments. We're lamenting just in the wrong spot. And that's why we need this practice of biblical lament. 
Because in a world where things are not as they should be, lament can help us process our pain in a way that leads to life. Because lament gives us permission to, to grieve, to express our pain, and to hold nothing back, but it also gives us a way to redirect our hearts and our minds to God and what is possible for Him. And that's what we see happening in Psalm 77. We see that lament is about more than talking about why we're sad or hurting. It's more about walking through the stages of grief. Lament is bringing your pain to God. Lament is praying what you are feeling and holding nothing back. It's about wrestling out what you're going through with God. And what we need to realize is lament is both a process and a destination. It has four steps or movements, all of which we see in Psalm 77. In verses 1 to 9, we see the first three movements as the psalm, psalmist turns to God and honestly and bluntly lays out what he's feeling and cries out to God to act. Those first three movements are turn to God in prayer. That's what he does. Secondly, it's voice your complaint to honestly and bluntly lay out what you are feeling with God. That's what he's doing. The third step is asking for God to act. He wants God to move. He wants God to do something. He's asking boldly for God to break in and to change his circumstances and to do something to, to relieve him of what he is going through. We see all of these things playing themselves out in verses 1 to 9. That's where the journey of lament begins. It's the process of bringing your pain to God and wrestling out with him. And it's simple. It's not complex. And I know you're sitting there and you're like, you're a pastor. It's expected. You're supposed to say that. You're supposed to say turn to God. That's your answer for everything. I know. But it doesn't make it any less true. That the best way to begin the journey of processing your pain is to bring it to God and lay it all out. Don't go for neat and tidy. Give yourself permission to be honest with God. He's a big boy. He can handle what you're going to bring to him. And so the starting point is to put words to your pain that you're experiencing because this world isn't as it should be. But then it's going to the next and the most important step, which is why lament never ends with our pain, but it ends with remembering redemption. Look at this in verse 10. The psalmist says, Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is as great as our God. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. And so after laying out all his distress and all his doubts, the prayer hits a turning point in verse 10. The entire prayer shifts with the word then in verse 10. The whole focus and the attention of the psalm goes from something beyond what the psalm is experiencing to something beyond himself. And the key phrase there is, I remember. To think about something, to call it to mind. And in the original language, it's especially to think about and call to mind a past event. And so what we see is that the final step in lament is to renew trust by remembering redemption. This is how lament works. It's meant to shift us away from a preoccupation with ourselves to a preoccupation with God. And we see that start to happen in verses 10 to 14 as the psalmist starts to think about who God is. Look there again. He talks about how God is holy and how God's ways are holy. 
He's saying that God is good to the core, that all his ways are good, that God is someone that we can trust to always do the right thing because he is good and there is no spot or stain or essence of ungood in him. He says, God, you are holy and all your ways are holy. And then he says, God, you are great and you are able to do extraordinary things. He's like, there is no one like this God. This God has no rival. He has no equal. He is greater than all other gods and all other things. Nothing frustrates his plan. Nothing can stop him. Nothing nothing can turn him aside from his ways and his purposes. He's done powerful things before, the psalmist says, and he will do them again because this God can do all things. And so what the psalmist is doing is he's filling his mind with truth about God and what God is able to do. But he doesn't stop there. He just keeps going. It's like this cascade, uh, a snowball effect. He just keeps going. And after thinking about who God is, his character, and what he's able to do, he thinks about what God has done. Or to put another way, he remembers redemption in verses 15 to 20. He says, with your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. So as good as the psalmist anchor was, we have a greater redemptive anchor in Jesus. And that means that you and I, we lament from a different chapter of the story. See, the psalmist anchor was the Exodus, that moment when God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. But we have a greater Exodus to anchor ourselves in where Jesus made a way for us to come out of slavery and sin and death. And so the the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it carries with it a hope that the psalmist never had, a greater hope of a world to come where the pain and the grief and the hardship and the trouble we experience now won't exist. It's a world where Revelation 21, the very last book of the Bible, it talks about this world. In chapter 21, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And so the world to come is one where heaven and earth are going to come together, where God will be with us and we will see him face to face. It's a world where we will no longer have the need for lament because everything that causes us to lament in this life will have passed away. There'll be no more tears, no more death, no more mourning, the pain, the depression, the anxiety and worry, the valley. It won't exist anymore because God will have come back and he will have set everything right. And for those who follow Jesus, who have put their trust in him and have committed to follow him every hour of the week, we get to experience a taste of this world to come in the here and now. And we get to live with the hope that one day we will get to experience the world to come firsthand. And until then, in a world as things are not as they should be, we lament. 
and we allow lament to pull us toward this world to come. And that's the power of lament. It has this gravitational pull to pull us to God, to pull us out of the valley, and to pull us to the world to come. And that's the beauty of lament that I hope you see today is that lament helps us to live between the world to come and the world as it is now. And so as you are here today and you have your struggles, you have your pain, you might be in the valley and it might be really dark right now, there is a way to put words to your pain in a world where things are not as it should be. And may I encourage you to bring your pain to God, to lay out what you feel, to hold nothing back, and to remember redemption, have your trust and your faith renewed, and your hope come alive once again that this world isn't all there is, that there is a world to come. And when you follow Jesus, that world is your home. And until then, we lament. And that helps us to live in the world that isn't as it should be.